Hi, welcome to the Benbird Prairie podcast. Benbird Prairie is a place of peace, of vital history and Christian charity here in the heart of Ulster. We offer this podcast as an extension of our mission. Please see our website, which is linked in the description below, and you can like and share and subscribe in order to support our ministry. If you wish to donate, then you can help the Prairie from August onwards, which we'll link in the description as well. So in this inaugural episode of the Benburb Prairie podcast, we are joined by the amazing Mike Aquilina. Uh, Mike is a popular author working in church history and the study of the early church fathers. He is author or editor of more than 60 books. He is songwriting partner for musical legend uh, Dion and host of Way of the Fathers, a podcast produced by catholicculture.org. In line with the Catholic ethos of Benmer Prairie, then we thought it would be an excellent idea to speak with Mike about his brilliant new book on St. Joseph, especially now that the church has named this the year of St. Joseph. So just to begin, Mike, can you please tell us a little bit about that initiative by the church and how it fits in with your book on St. Joseph? <laughs> well, first, I want to say I had no idea that this was coming. I had finished a book about St. Joseph and I turned it into my publisher on the Feast of St. Joseph that year uh, in, in, um, in 2020. Uh, I turned it in on March 19th and, um, and then I, I just kind of let it go, Do, didn't think about it. And I heard from my publisher that it was coming out on December 8th, that it would arrive in the warehouses on December 8th. Um, then I wake up on December 8th, I turn on my computer and immediately my newsfeed is filled up with, uh, with news stories about uh, the Pope Francis's new letter, Patris Corde, on the 150th anniversary of the proclamation of St. Joseph as patron of the Universal Church. Well, that came as quite a surprise. And uh, because in this letter, he declares a year of St. Joseph. And it's the very day that, um, that, that my book arrived. And I think that my book and the letter nicely complement each other. I, I like to think so anyway, because I, I tried to give the historical details, the historical background, what we can know um, with some degree of certainty about the, the life and times of St. Joseph. And, and uh, Pope Francis was working with the same data and drawing out certain lessons that he's certainly more competent uh, to, to draw. Uh, and, uh, and he was talking about the qualities of St. Joseph's fatherhood in the church, um, especially um, his, his character as a creatively courageous father. Uh, so, so, Mike, uh, you mentioned uh, in your book that we have a kind of chiaroscuro sketch of St. Joseph. Um, so, so what is that? Uh, why is this the case? And, you know, what makes St. Joseph such a unique character to study? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, the, the, the technique of chiaroscuro is, uh, is, uh, is something that plays with light and shadow. It plays with, um, with, with uh, concealing and uh, revealing. So an artist will depict the surrounding shadows in order to accentuate the objects that are caught in a small shaft of light. So the figure com comes into focus because he's defined against the surrounding darkness. Well, the New Testament sheds comparatively little light on St. Joseph, right? Um, we don't get the, the level of detail that we'd like. We don't get the same level of detail we get, for example, with the figure of the Blessed Virgin Mary or St. Peter or St. Paul. St. Joseph does not speak a single word 
in the entire New Testament. So we don't we don't know anything he said. We we can't tell his thoughts. We can't tell his inner life except as it's um as it's manifest in his deeds. And so we want to understand those deeds because we know that they're very important in in world history. We know that they're very important in our personal history, the history of salvation. Um, uh, and we want to work with the data that we have. So, uh, so again, I uh, in my book I tried to to begin with those shadows that we have, and then concentrate on the light. What we know from Scripture, first of all, because we have the certainty there that it's um it's it's divinely revealed, and inspired, uh, but but also from history and archaeology and other sources that we have for understanding the times of Saint Joseph. Thanks for that, Mike. And um, just to provide a little background then, what were some of the routines and historical trends of St. Joseph's world that you write about in the book? Well, it was a different world from our own, uh, uh, though many of the elements are the same. I mean, people ate, they drank, they socialized, they married, they worked, they did all of these things, but they did them in different circumstances. Uh, you know, so much of what we do today is defined by technology. Right now, I am speaking with you. I am in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, you know, and you're in Ireland. <laughs> I mean, it's it's an amazing thing that we can communicate and that our worlds, our personal worlds are so large, you know, and yet the world itself is made so small by the technology and our work is made so much easier um, uh, in, in, in many ways. Uh, so, you know, we have technology of transportation too. Uh, just just a couple of weeks ago, I was able to attend my nephew's wedding in Florida, which is a distant land. You know, I was able to get on a plane and, and get there in relatively few, few hours. You know, there was a storm in Florida, so we had to orbit the airport for a while, but mm -hmm. I still was able to get there pretty quickly within the span of far less than a day. Um, there was nothing like that in that time. If you wanted to undertake uh, a trip to the nearest city, it would sometimes take more than a day, you know, several days perhaps. Uh, communications uh, were unreliable. You know, you had to you had to write something out and send it by messenger. Maybe it would arrive. Maybe it wouldn't. You may never know. Right? Communications were far more complicated and difficult. Uh, labor was more complicated and difficult. Transportation was something like, like we can't imagine. So what I wanted um, was to give people an imaginative entry into that world, to understand the world and its routines and its circumstances, uh, its limitations compared to what we experience today. But it was a very rich experience nonetheless. It's just so alien to our modern mindset that it's hard for us to get into if we don't have that background from the primary sources. Uh, and Mike, you know, who were some of the, uh, the key figures in Israel at the time of St. Joseph, um, either groups like the Pharisees or individuals like Herod, uh, you know, how did they play a role in the story of St. Joseph and salvation history? Well, you know, if you lived in a little remote village, an insignificant place like Nazareth, the key people in your life were your family, your clan. Nazareth had a population of about 100 at that time. And it was tightly knit. Most of the people came from the same clan. They were descendants of King David. Uh, so they, they knew their history. The most important people in their lives were the people who were around them. Uh, but 
but you know they were well aware of what was going on on uh, the the national scene and on the world scene. They had to be because because their land was uh, was important strategically in geopolitical terms. Okay, the land the land of Judea uh, was uh, was important as a, a kind of uh, middle ground, a roadway, really, uh, uh, between great empires, between Persia and Rome, uh, and so, so it was. It was often disputed. It was often used, uh, and uh, it was important for the military, uh, you know, to uh, of these places to to get through to where they needed to be. It was very important for commerce if you wanted to move goods or move money from east to west or from west to east. Um, uh, all of these things were very important. They, they uh, increased the value of Judea on an international scale. And so you, you knew that uh, you could suddenly be involved in a, uh, an international conflagration. Uh, it's a great thing to be the land that controls access for two great empires, but it's also a pretty scary thing. So you stayed tuned to what was going on in the world scene and there were important things happening then. Rome was just kind of beginning to feel its international power, right? Uh, and so uh, there, there were all kinds of competitions uh, shifting and alliances shifting uh, in Judea itself. Herod had taken the throne after, after the rule of the Hasmonean dynasty. During the time of the Hasmoneans, we find kind of religious revival going on uh, and a nas strong national identity, a recovery of the ancestral lands, important things happening in the Jewish world. And of course, if you were in a little place like Nazareth, you were keenly aware of this because it kind of looked like the ancient prophecies were coming true. And, uh, and the lands were being restored, you know, the practice of the law, the observance of the law was coming back, and maybe we're approaching the time of the Messiah. The prophet Daniel said it would come in 70 weeks of years, 490 years. And boy, if, if my watch is right, that's right about now, you know? <laughs> so the, the people in Nazareth would have been kind of caught up in these various trends. They also would have been well aware of, of, uh, of King Herod, his character and his deeds, because he was Herod the Great. He was already known as Herod the Great in his lifetime because he was a master of, of many, many fields. He was a master of architecture and builder uh, and building. He was, um, he was uh, an, an architect of, uh, of some renown. And, uh, and also he was a master of diplomacy. He was a guy who could get his way with, um, with Caesar Augustus, with Cassius, with, uh, with Mark Antony, with Cleopatra, all of these great figures on the world scene. So he was a master. Uh, and the people in Nazareth would have been aware of their king. Maybe they were proud that he was finally putting them back on the map. And maybe they were a little scared because the other thing he was well known for was massacres. He kept his people in awe by means of these great building programs, but also by means of mass murder, when he felt it was necessary to keep the peace. Thanks for that, Mike. And um, then what was Joseph's own family background like? And especially, what was it like to be a carpenter, for example, in those days? And how would that have helped to form his character? Well, it seems from the earliest sources we have that both Joseph 
and Mary uh, had a Davidic background. That is, they they were seen as uh, descendants. They knew themselves to be descendants of King David by one of the royal lines. Okay. Now, you have to uh, recognize that um, that King David was made king. Uh, and he was God's choice. And God made some extravagant promises to David, you know, that he would be, he would be a king forever, that his house would rule over, over Israel forever and ever and ever. Uh, these were wild promises, and they were holding the Lord God to these promises. Uh, and yet, what happened? You know, the, the last of the Davidic line, uh, the last king in the line had to witness his own sons being murdered, slaughtered before his eyes, before he was blinded, so that the last image he would know in this life on earth would be the scene of his son's murder. So it was, um, it seemed hopeless, and yet Israel had faith in God, and they believed that the time would come when the house of David would be restored to the monarchy. So there were a lot of questions at this time, again, because the lands were being restored, because observance uh, of, of the law was being restored, because, because the temple was being rebuilt, the, the temple that had been built by Solomon, uh, the son of David. So we know that the, the, the clan of King David, which had been exiled in Babylon for centuries, kept meticulous uh, genealogical records. The priestly lines also kept genealogical records during the years that they were separated from the temple when they were in exile. People needed to know what family they came from because the monarchy and the priesthood were confined to one family. You know, they, they had to know the family they came from. Uh, so, so Joseph and Mary would have been keenly aware of their lineage uh, and of the uh, the, the, the possibility that now was the time and that any child born in that village during that time uh, uh, could be the Messiah. There were, uh, an interesting thing about Nazareth is that it's one of two villages that are suddenly created almost ex nihilo at that time. They, they just suddenly appear uh, and, uh, in a land that had previously been uncultivated, that had been wilderness for centuries before. Uh, so what's happening here? 100 BC, suddenly these two villages, Nazareth and Kokhba, are, are, are created and they're populated by the, the, the descendants of King David who came back from Babylon, the exile in Babylon. What's happening here? Well, they see the signs. They're moving back to the land. They want to be there for the great moment. This would have been something that, that, that dominated uh, the consciousness of the people in these villages. They chose names for the villages that had messianic connotations. Kokhba, the star, right? Uh, because it, it comes from the Old Testament prophecy. And, um, and Nazareth, the branch, uh, you know, because the stump would come up from the, the, the uh, or the, the, the branch would come up from the, the, the root, the, <laughs> because, because the branch, the, the, the shoot would come up from the stump of, of Jesse's tree. So, uh, so they chose these names very deliberately. They had this awareness of their Davidic ancestry and that perhaps their time had come, the time of the Messiah. So, uh, you know, uh, in addition to that, 
they had to do their daily work. They had to go about their ordinary lives. They had to, to uh, you know, marry and uh, be given in marriage. They had to, uh, they had to do the things that people do in order to to make the world turn, make their own world turn. So they had all of these these customs. They had all of these habits. Uh, it's likely that in Joseph's own family, carpentry was something that was passed down from father to son, because that's the way it worked in those times. You learned a trade from your father. You were apprenticed to your father. And, uh, and so Joseph would have grown up in the trade and gradually worked his way into the duties of, of a carpenter, of a craftsman. Now, the name the New Testament gives to him is tecton, uh, just is a generic term for craftsmen. It's from tradition that we we learn that he was a carpenter uh, and a maker of plows and other things. So, um, so there were, would have been certain habits and customs that went with with uh, with those labors as well. Uh, and what age do we think, uh, Mike, that uh, Joseph was when he married uh, Mary? Uh, and what makes us think so? Oh, that's actually a pretty explosive question. You know, people <laughs> vehemently disagree about this. And there were ancient, ancient uh, traditions that Joseph was at a very advanced age at the time of his marriage. And some of the apocryphal gospels even say that he was in his 90s and he had grandchildren who were older than the Blessed Virgin Mary. Um, uh, I believe that those sources were... Uh, kind of conjured as fictions in order to um, to present an apologetic response to those who would who would question the the virginity the perpetual virginity of the Blessed Virgin Mary so they wanted to neutralize Joseph right they wanted to make him as feeble as possible we want to make him a man in his 90s or his 80s or his 70s um, you know or even even like me in his late 50s <laughs> to to make him less of a threat you know uh, and uh, a threat to the doctrine uh, but but I believe that 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 just does not line up. And I'm not the first one to say this. Uh, Saint Jerome, uh, the great biblical scholar, uh, uh, condemned those apocryphal gospels uh, in the, the fourth and fifth centuries. Uh, they just don't ring true when you read the biblical record. Would a 90-year-old man or even a 70-year-old man during that time be able to undertake a 1,000-mile journey to Egypt's interior at high speed? trying to outrun the military in great danger, you know, sleeping on the roadside by night and trying to hide from brigands as well as, as King Herod's army? I don't think so. You know, I would find that pretty well impossible at my age. Um, and uh, and, and I, I, I have a hard time believing that, um, that, that an elderly Joseph would have done it. That said, you know, that there is, this, is, this is a point of some dispute it's a matter about which the church has not declared. I just side with those like um, like St. Jerome, St. Thomas Aquinas, and in the modern age, those like St. Saint, Saint Jose Maria Escrivá, who, um, who believe that St. Joseph was a young man uh, in uh, remarkable vigor uh, because he was a, a, a man of his, his trade, which required physical strength, and uh, that he was, he was well prepared to undertake such a journey. And, uh, and he was a chaste man. I think that what that shows us is that a young man in full vigor can be chaste, can live chastely. We see this, you know, we see this in real life, that there are these people who can live this way. 2000 years of Christianity has taught us this, uh, that many people fail, but some people 
some people do persevere and they 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 reveal themselves to us as as models of chastity thanks for that mike and um can you tell us a little bit about the visitation and some of the main theories about Mary's need to visit her cousin Elizabeth, as that's recounted in the scriptures? Uh, well, uh, you know, we, we, we learn of that story in St. Luke's gospel, and I think that Mary's need was, was interior. You know, she felt a great affection for, um, for her, her kinswoman, Elizabeth, and uh, she knew that Elizabeth would need her. So we see that it's a great act of charity. It's a great spirit of service, and she does it with a uh, she does it with a certain urgency. You know, it, uh, Saint Luke tells us that she went in haste to the hill country. Now, this would have been a journey on foot or on the back of a beast, and it would have it would have taken several days, uh, uh, and it would have it would have been demanding in the heat. I made. I made the journey in an air-conditioned bus, and I found it difficult because the bus had no restroom. Um, uh, but uh, but it's uh, it would have been especially demanding during that time for a pregnant woman to make the journey, and yet we see her do it. We see her undertake service, um, service of another in this in this difficult time. I think it quite likely that Joseph made the journey with her. He was her betrothed. It would have been a dangerous journey to make on the on the roads and you have to you, you have to find places to stay at night typically what you would do is you would stop in a village along the way and you would you would visit the synagogue there and in the synagogue uh, you would be able to stay overnight uh, the synagogue served as kind of hostels for Jews who were who were on the roads and they they could they could get rest from their travels and know that they would be safe there and that they would um, they would be able to observe the law in these places, you know, uh, they would be able to keep to their prayers and so on. Um, so I think it's quite likely that Saint Joseph made the journey with her to protect her and to help her to assist her, and uh, and that it was a journey of several days. They um, they likely stopped at synagogues along the way for rest. And Mike, you know, what is the what is the significance of, of Joseph's own annunciations, as it were, uh, or, or visits from angels? And, you know, what does that tell us about St. Joseph and about angels? Wow, that's a huge question, because, <laughs> uh, because these scenes are remarkable. You know, we, we, we were told of this one visit that Mary received from the, the Archangel Gabriel, uh, we have four angelic visitations to St. Joseph. Uh, we never see St. Joseph talking to another human being, but we find him communicating with an angel four times, four times. It's a remarkable thing. Uh, and his visits with these angels or visits from these angels are quite unlike the angelic encounters that we see in the Old Testament. Typically, in the Old Testament, when someone sees an angel, like Daniel, for example, or Ezekiel or, or Balaam, what do they do? They, boom, they fall flat on their faces. They're terrified, right? St. Joseph seems very much at ease in the presence of the angel. You know, he's able to receive the angel's message uh, and even sleep through it uh, and, uh, and, and, and learn what he, he needs to learn and then act based on that information. Uh, I think it tells us a few things. One, it tells us about, about devotion to the angels in the first century BC. We know from other sources that there was an intense devotion to the holy angels during this time. For example, uh, we see in the Dead Sea Scrolls that 
a certain sect, probably the Essenes, expected uh, a world war to commence in in short in in a short time, and the 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 holy people, the people of Israel, would have to fight alongside angels against the fallen angels and their allies on the earth, the enemies of of a united Israel. So this was coming, and as a result, we find uh, we find devotions. Uh, to the Archangel Michael in, uh, in, in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And we find other angelic liturgies in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So there was, there was an awareness of, of the angels, not you know, from, from devotional texts and from the biblical texts, from the liturgies of that time, because the angels uh, are, are all over the Book of Psalms, which, which would have been an important part of worship in the synagogue and in the temple. Uh, so there was an awareness of the angels, there was a devotion to them, and, and Joseph seems very much tuned into that. Uh, he, was, he was at ease, uh, in a sense, in the presence of the angel. He was receiving the angel's counsel, and he was acting upon it. Um, there's a certain ordinariness to those scenes. Uh, they're not shown as, um, as spectacular, the way the angelophanies are in the Old Testament, uh, there, there's just an ordinariness of um, of a man uh, and and his angel, and um, and and what happens in their communication. Thanks for that, Mike. And um, what do we know then, or could you tell us a bit more about the flight into Egypt and how that impacted on Saint Joseph and the Holy Family? Well, we know that it was undertaken hastily, right? They they get it, they get this information about about um, uh, uh, you know that the, that the king is uh, is 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 out to kill their son, you know that he's he's initiated this uh, this purge, and its real object is their newborn son. Uh, now, a little bit of backstory: Herod was a man who was very jealous of his power, very jealous of his power. He had killed several of his sons, one of his wives, his mother-in-law, because he viewed them as threats. At one point, you know, he killed 300 military officers because he suspected that they were disloyal. Herod was a man who did not, um, did not stand by and allow any threat to emerge. Now here he, he's told that there's a newborn king of the Jews. Well, excuse me, but that's my title, you know? Herod was even jealous of the title of Messiah. He was not about to relinquish the one he had as king of Judea. Um, so, uh, so Herod initiates this purge and everybody believes that he'll follow through on it. Um, so the Holy Family flees. They probably fled by night. They did, they left their belongings behind. They took only what they could. Uh, they needed to travel quickly. Travel was a difficult and dangerous thing. You know, we think of, of even the roads we have for our automobiles today, they're all pretty smooth. You know, we think of bike paths, which are all pretty smooth. We have the technology to accomplish that. But the roads in that time were pitted and rutted. They're leaving by night. They can't see the pits and the ruts. If they had a beast they were riding on, the beast can't see the pits and ruts. This would have been a very difficult journey. You're trying to move as quickly as possible, but as safely as possible, because you don't want this, this, um, this, this mother and child to be endangered in any way. So you're moving along the roads. You're moving at night. Nobody traveled at night unless they were crazy or they were in a hurry or some kind of danger because there were brigands who were waiting by the sides of the road to take 
your money, your possessions, take you, sell you into slavery, all of these grave dangers that were going along. Now, the first leg of the journey would have been the most difficult because that's when they were in Herod's territory. There was a providential circumstance, though, that shortened that distance for them, that Herod was at the time uh, having, um, having some difficulties with his neighbors, the Nabataeans. They believed that Herod was, was trying a little too hard to take their territory, and they were standoffish. They were keeping him away. I think the Holy Family would have benefited from the circumstance. They would have been safer once they got beyond that border into the Nabataean territory. There, they would have encountered um, uh, synagogues in the villages still because there were Jews in those lands. They would have had synagogues. In the synagogues, they would have received hospitality. They could have had lodging. Still, they would have been concerned about spies because Herod was notorious for his network of spies. They had to move quickly and they wanted to get into Egyptian territory where they would have been safer and not only into Egyptian territory because according to tradition, as fairly reliable traditions, they didn't just go inches into, into Egypt and then mop their brow. They kept going to, to the places in Egypt's interior that they knew to be enclaves of the Jews, where they would have been safer and where they could raise a child in the ways of their ancestors, where they could observe the law among other Jews, know the nearness of synagogues and, um, and the example of Jewish neighbors. Uh, so, so, um, I think it's an edifying uh, story for many reasons, uh, not only because of the courage it required and the endurance it required, but also because of, of the care about little things, you know, that they were, they were thinking ahead already about the best circumstances for raising a son. Um, they were thinking about the, the religious upbringing of their child and what that would require, and they were taking practical steps toward that end. Uh, and why is it, uh, Mike, you think, why is it proper to think of St. Joseph as a worker? Uh, you know, how does he bear witness to our dignity of work and serve as an inspiration today? You know, especially with the uh, dull, monotonous work and child labor and often uh, malforming technologies and so on. Yeah, you know, um It's, it's proper to think of him as a worker, as a laborer, because that's the way the New Testament presents him. Uh, it's interesting that he's referred to as the tecton, the, the carpenter, the craftsman, the, the tradesman, that as if it's his name. You know, it's his, it's his second name, that he was identified with his work in an important way. That's how he was remembered decades after his death. He was remembered as the tecton. Uh, it's interesting because the Jews were almost unique in valuing the work of manual laborers. Uh, if, you, if you read Aristotle, if you read the works of Plato, if you read Herodotus, you find that there's an almost universal disdain for manual laborers, uh, that, that they were considered a, a, an almost subhuman class in all of these other places. And in fact, Herodotus says that this is a universal attitude. Actually, he says an almost universal attitude. He doesn't say, you know, what the exception to the rule is, but I think it was the Jews because they valued manual labor. When you look back 
on the great heroes of their history, of their tradition, they were manual laborers, right? Abel was a herdsman. Noah was a mariner. David was a herdsman. Jacob was a farmer who leaned into a plow year after year after year and then did it again, right? All of these people worked with their hands. They got sweaty and dirty. They weren't aristocrats. They weren't men of leisure. They weren't philosophers. They weren't theologians, so to speak, the way we think about those classes of people today. Uh, they, were, they were pretty gritty people. And that's, that's what St. Joseph was. Uh, he was. He was seen as that by his neighbors, and yet he was honored as a just man. There's no way in the world that Socrates would have honored such a man as a just man. The, and, and, and meant the term the way uh, the way Joseph's J Jewish neighbors did, okay? He just wouldn't have seen things that way because here was a man who was physically incapable. He would have uh, incapable of virtue, he would have said. He just could not rise to the level of the aristocrats and, and the people of leisure. He could not cultivate the things that were valued by, by his class. Um, the Jews were completely different. You know, they said things like, uh, seven years came the famine, and yet it did not come to the door of the tradesman, the craftsman, the tecton, the carpenter, right? Why? Because he could still work when all the other means of, of making a living were, were falling away. He could still work, and his work was still needed. It was still valued. Uh, you know, the rabbis also said, he who does not teach his son a trade teaches him to steal, right? So you were supposed to teach your son how to do something with his hands. And that's what Joseph's father did. That's what Joseph did himself for Jesus, because carpentry was the trade practiced by Jesus as well. He too was known as the carpenter. And this had a great deal of dignity. And really, this is something that was set apart in the ancient world. And it set Christians apart as the church began to grow because the church valued labor and laborers the way the Jews, the Jews had um, in antiquity. So, uh, so we find a, a, a great deal of esteem for, um, for laborers all through the early Christian period. You can see it in the tombs of the Christian from that time, from in the catacombs. You can find it in the texts and the sermons from that time. Uh, and you find it even in the characters in the New Testament. Who's the chief spokesman of early Christianity? It's Paul, whose, whose trade was making tents and canopies. Peter was a fisherman, right? Uh, John and James were fishermen. We find Alexander the coppersmith, all of these other people who worked with their hands, worked at trades. This is something that they learned from St. Joseph. This is something they, that they learned from, from Jesus. This is what's something that the world learned from the Jews. That's wonderful. Thank you, Mick. And um, on that way, then, what was the significance of the Passover for St. Joseph and for other Jews of that time? Well, the Passover would have been one of the three uh, mandatory pilgrim feasts. You had to go to Jerusalem. All adult males were required to go to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. And they were required to do this because the, on the Passover, uh, you, 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 um, you had the Seder meal in which you renewed your covenant with God. Okay, every family was was supposed to do this, uh, and and at least the adult males were supposed to be be there in Jerusalem, so that would have been very significant. I think for their family, uh, 
wow. I mean, it kind of it kind of um, blows my mind when I think about it because because I think of that scene in St. Luke's Gospel of of Joseph and Mary taking Jesus to Jerusalem at age twelve. Uh, some scholars believe this would have been his first trip to Jerusalem, his first pilgrim feast celebrated in the city, because at that time you were expected, a boy was expected to begin to, to take on the whole of the law, the entire yoke of the law, to be contributing money, to be making the pilgrim feasts, to be undertaking the, 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 the obligations of prayer and observance in, 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 in their entirety. So this would have been Jesus' first feast, and he would have had to go and he would have had, had a part to play in the Seder of his family. You know, there were questions to be asked of the patriarch. Perhaps Jesus was the one that year who asked those questions. And what's interesting is that in this little window of time, the first century BC, we actually have some, um, some, some notes that were, that were left behind uh, about Passover observance. And uh, they're, they're notes that are, that are done in the margins of, of certain passages of the prophet Isaiah, and also in certain passages of the book of Exodus, explaining to people how to, how to, how to um, tell the story of the Passover. Now, those notes include something called the poem of the four nights, the four nights. And that poem, uh, that poem tells the story of, of, of creation, and history, and it says that uh, that in 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 time there have been four nights that were turning points in God's relationship with man. The first was the night of creation. Okay, the second was the the night when Abraham offered Isaac as as a sacrifice uh, at Moriah. The third was was uh, was the night of uh, of the Passover before the Exodus. Now those first three nights all occurred on the 14th day of Nisan on the Jewish calendar. And it was predicted that the fourth night, which was still in the future, would also take place on 14 Nisan. What was that to be? That was to be the night of the Messiah's banquet. And it was still to come. Now think about this. Joseph is telling that story at the Passover meal, and his son Jesus is there. What's happening at that moment? Jesus is learning how one day to be a patriarch himself, how one day to observe the Seder and to lead the Seder. He's learning this from St. Joseph. He's hearing the story from St. Joseph, and he would one day fulfill that story in the context of a Passover meal on on that the, the mountain of Jerusalem, the, the, the holy city. This is, is remarkable. This is something that, um, that, that should amaze us when we think about that scene of, um, of, of our Lord and uh, the visit to Jerusalem at age 12. That Passover would have been formative for him. And as a result, that Passover would have been formative for us because it's in the context of that later Passover that Jesus establishes the Eucharist that has transformed our lives, the Eucharist, which has been his presence among us ever since. It's all Passover. It's all Passover. And we should understand it in, in the context um, in which Jesus understood it in the, 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 in the first century, his century.
Yeah, magnificent. Thank you, Mike. And um, something you talk about in the book is prudence. I want to ask you, what is prudence and why is this a vital um, virtue for us to rediscover? Uh, prudence is, is practical wisdom that enables right action. Um, uh, prudence helps a, a, a virtuous person steer the middle course between opposite extremes. For example, uh, between cowardice on one, one side and recklessness. You wanna get right between the two of them and have fortitude, right? Well, St. Joseph shows us how to exercise such a virtue, you know, how to become more prudent. What do we see in, in the, the scenes that we have of his life? We see someone who is thoughtful, who is prayerful, who wants what God wants, and he's willing to recognize his own limitations and change his mind, right? So because we see St. Joseph, what happens? He's troubled by, by Mary's pregnancy. He can't understand this. It, it's beyond him. It, it, it overwhelms him. He, he wonders whether he could fulfill this role. And yet he, 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 he goes his way, his thoughtful way, his silent way, this way of, of interior recollection. He's visited by his angel, and where we can be sure that he cultivated the help of this guardian angel. And he learns that he's to fulfill God's will, that he has this part to play, and he has faith that God will give him the strength for this. You know, prudence is, is what enables him to seek help. Prudence is what, it, what, what kind of compels him to think and to think clearly. And it's also what, um, what gives him the flexibility to change his mind, to recognize that he was wrong in his choice of action and to choose a different course. Um, prudence gives him this kind, of, this kind of humility. You know, the ancients saw prudence as the key to all of the other virtues, that you need this kind of practical wisdom, this kind of recollection in order to choose the, the middle course between opposite vices. Uh, and, uh, and Joseph seems able to do that. I think we can learn from him. Uh, one of the things he teaches us, it's a very simple thing, is, is that we should be cultivating uh, a relationship with our guardian angel in simple ways. Greeting our guardian, guardian angel in the morning, um, asking the help of our guardian angel when we face uh, you know, problems of differing difficulty, not only in extreme circumstances, like dangerous circumstances, but also in, in the ordinary things we do during the day. Um, thanking our guardian angel when we, we sense that we received help from our guardian angel, uh, greeting the guardian angels of other people around us. Uh, I think the best advice I ever got in the confessional was from my confessor a long time ago, almost 30 years ago. And at the time, you know, I was just learning how to be a father, just learning how to be a dad. My son had, you know, was just coming into his own, you know, getting a little bit beyond the toddler years. And, uh, and he, he was the most willful creature I had ever encountered. <laughs> I thought I was pretty smart and I knew I was going to be a better dad than my father or my grandfather because I knew everything, right? I got, I went to college. They didn't, you know, I learned all this stuff. I got A's in college. So I, I was pretty confident and, and here this little kid came into my life and upended, you know, my, <laughs> everything, right? He did not recognize my omniscience, my infallibility. Um, <laughs> 
So I would go to confession every week and, you know, I would make my son's confession. I would say, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It's been one week since my last confession. And, uh, and in that time, I, I lost my temper three times. And let me tell you why, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, you make your kids confession. But my confessor at that time uh, told me, Mike, you know, next time you see your son, before you greet your son, I want you to do something. I want you to greet his guardian angel. Greet his guardian angel, because then he said, it's three against one. <laughs> it's you and his guardian angel and your guardian angel against him. But you're not really against him. You're trying to get him to heaven and get you there too. And so I tried that. And then I tried it with everyone else I knew. I tried it at work. And really, it made communication so easy. The life of St. Joseph shows us this, you know, that, that, that the angels are all about communication. They can make things very clear to us when things seem very murky, when things seem very troubling. They keep us in difficult situations, social situations. They want us to thrive. They want us to succeed. They want us to be faithful, and they're willing to help us. Those first century BC Jews knew what they were doing when they cultivated devotion to the holy angels, the, 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 the community that wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls. They knew what they were doing when they taught their people how to go to the angels to seek the, their help. God gave us angels in order to protect us, to light and guard, to rule and guide, and we should use that gift from God. God expects us to use every gift he's given us, and this is one of the most important gifts that he's given us. Amen. Thank you so much, Mike, and um, thank you so much again for joining us today and for you watching at home too. Where can viewers then get the new book and uh, follow you and your work then, Mike? Well, I, I always tell people, if, if you have a Catholic bookstore nearby, go there and ask them, ask them to, to get it in stock. Those are the people who are doing the heroic work today. It's a work of evangelization. We should help them as much as we can. If you can't find it there, I'm sure you can find it as at all the, um, all the usual uh, places where you buy books online. It's published by Scepter Press, uh, which has a, 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 you know, a, a, an online presence, and its books are also sold by other vendors. So uh, it shouldn't be too hard to find. Amazing. And God bless you, Mike. And anybody watching, um, remember to like, to share and subscribe to support Ben Bar Priory. And from August, you'll be able to donate if you wish and give us a, a visit in person. You can avail from Servite Hospitality, our museum, library, the castle, and we have a beautiful Valley Park. And uh, yeah, God bless you. And thank you again, Mike. And thank you, Daniel. Thank, thank you, you for Mike. having me. Thank you, Mark. <laughs>